Knowing what you believe and why you believe it lies at the very heart of Christian experience, worship, and everyday living. The Bible's not about you. You're not David. Trouble in life is not Goliath. Jesus is going to be David in the shadow. Goliath is going to be sin and death. Who's that make you? Uh, and it doesn't make you the Israelites in the corner. Going, He's going to kill all of us. That's exactly who you are. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I, with body and soul, life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. The gospel is that God the Son freely agreed to die our death for us, to suffer our deserved condemnation and doom in our place. And he didn't just agree from eternity to do it, he actually did it. It is fatal, fatal for us to think that we can ever move on from the gospel. The great problem in the evangelical church today where the scripture is concerned is not the inerrancy of the Bible. The great problem in the evangelical church today is the sufficiency of scripture. We don't think it's sufficient to do what we have to do. So we have to wake up what's happening and recognize that the problem really is our lack of theology. Hi and welcome to Theology Gals. This is Colleen Sharp and today I am joined by Cassandra Wolf and we're going to be talking about disabilities and disabilities in the church and even in regards to parents that have children with disabilities or some say special needs and we're going to really dig into a lot and so Cassandra just for starters can you share a little bit about yourself and also why you're here to talk about this with me Thank you so much, Colleen, first of all, for having me on the show. Um, I have loved listening to Theology Gals, and so it's, it's really great to speak about this topic. Um, I am 29 years old, and I was born and raised and still live in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Um, I Currently, I'm a social worker, and I work with people with disabilities um, in helping them find employment outcomes that help them to live their, their fullest lives with all of their abilities. But disability has always been something that has been very personal for me. Um, I was born at 28 weeks, so I was very premature. And as a result of that, I am legally blind um, and I have mild cerebral palsy. So when it came to thinking about my faith and disabilities, it's kind of been a journey, but as I've grown, as I've grown more and more in my understanding of how disability impacts my everyday in my personal and professional life, and as I've grown in my spiritual life and my knowledge of Christ and who he is and what this world looks like in, in all of the things that we have, those two passions of disability and understanding it um, understanding it in line with the gospel has become such a such a heart calling of mine and I want so badly for the church that I love to understand um, the unique struggles and capabilities of disability and I want people with disabilities whom I love and identify with I want them to know the fullness of life um, in Christ and what it means to be part of a, a community and a body that can walk alongside them through all sorts of trials and um, celebration. 
And you are a member of a PCA there in Michigan, correct? Yes, I am a member of Christ Church PCA in Grand Rapids. It's been a wonderful community. And I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but we may have people that are new listeners or newer to Theology Gals. And I, I am mom to a son with cerebral palsy. He's 20 years old now. His name's Benjamin. And he has cerebral palsy, mild cerebral palsy, and also developmental delays and um, a lot of learning disabilities. And so I'll be inputting some stuff just from the perspective of a parent um, of a child that has uh, some of these um, disabilities and out there. And, and of course, that's how that's looked for us has changed a lot since he's now, well, he's almost 21. He'll be 21 in June. So I think we should just start by talking about what what is a disability. And I found something online that I wanted to read and then have you kind of expound on it a little bit. Sure. Um, But one of the things we'll be talking about today is the Americans with Disabilities Act, because that did change a lot of things. We're going to talk about some of the history of that and what that is later on. But um, they talk about what a disability is. And one of the things that um, that's important, I think, to understand is that it can be a physical, it can be um, even a mental illness, it can be something permanent or something that like cancer that, that can be healed. Um, and there's a list that I found here that um, disabilities can include deafness, blindness, an intellectual disability, partially or completely missing limbs or mobility impairments requiring the use of a wheelchair, autism, cancer, cerebral palsy, diabetes, epilepsy, HIV, multiple sclerosis, muscular dystrophy, major depressive disorder, bipolar disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, and schizophrenia. And I, I even am considered to have a disability. I have epilepsy and I also have a, a chronic illness. So it can include all, all sorts of things like that. And I'd like you to talk about that a little bit, Cassandra. Definitely. Thank you. Um, So I think what the ADA did a little bit was to kind of say the ADA, the the law was written to include as many people as possible. When people were coming together to say we need to include the rights of people with disabilities to make sure that they are not discriminated against, uh, the lawmakers said that needs to include um, so, so many types. It needs to include invisible disabilities and visible disabilities. It needs to include people who are perceived as having a disability. So maybe someone who was in a tragic burn accident and who is a survivor of that accident. So maybe they don't have anything physically wrong with them, but because they look different um, from what society was per- would perceive as normal, they are covered, their rights are covered under the ADA. And I think it's really great because what that legislation does is it expands the idea of who is included. Um, it's not just the people that you think of who are wheelchair users, or it's not just um, someone who has a very visible physical disability, 
but it can be someone who battles uh, depression or, um, you know, we can even think about folks who are aging. Um, as people get older, we tend to think, you know, that's just because they're getting older that they're struggling with their mobility or their hearing or their sight or their memory. But really under the law, that's considered a disability and it doesn't make it a, a bad thing. It doesn't reflect on that person negatively. What it says is we are offering more opportunity for safety and protection. And I think once we start to offer medical diagnoses and say that's included in disability, or when we start to say, you know, folks who are getting older, um, they might be included in that conversation about disability. I think it can make the word a bit less scary and a bit less something that we want to shy away from as a society. Um, to say, oh, this this can include ultimately everyone. Um, there's a quote that I've heard often, and I don't remember who first coined it, but they said, you know, we are all temporarily able-bodied because um, if you don't have a disability today, you could get one tomorrow, either through a chronic illness or an accident or just by virtue of aging. Um, Disability is something that affects every single person, either with as a person living with a disability or as a loved one of someone who is experiencing these. And so that's why I think it's so important to understand the legislation was there to cover all people who might fall under those broad categories, but also for the church to kind of think about this topic um, because it's the largest minority in the world and it's the largest growing minority. You know, I found something interesting online that I'll just read. Um, and this is in regards to the Americans with Disabilities Act, but it says certain specific conditions that are widely considered antisocial or tend to result in illegal activities such as kleptomania, pedophilia, voyeurism, there's a bunch listed here, are excluded under the definition of disability in order to prevent abuse of the statute's purpose. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was fascinating. Do you think we can, is there kind of a working definition of disability? I mean, we talked about what it includes, but is there an actual working definition that you think of? Well, I, you know, unfortunately, I think the working definition often um, talks about limitations and things that are limiting because of a mental state or a physical state. Um, I say that that's an unfortunate thing because it it focuses on someone's limitations and their impediments rather than what are folks capable of and what are their abilities and what are their skills and what are their gifts. So, you know, I, I often think of the ADA as the working definition of what a disability is. Um, in the work that I do um, with my clients, their def- their working definition of disability is based on if their physical or mental limitations would prevent them from um, obtaining employment. And we have to look at the different barriers associated with that. Um, However, I think those definitions can be helpful because it can then guide us to, okay, what do we need as far as accommodation or um, helping to teach people about, well, you may have these physical differences or disabilities, difficulties, but what are your strengths and abilities? Um, Does that make sense? 
Yeah, no, I think I think that's helpful. Real and really what we're talking about is so broad because mm-hmm. and even so different can look so different from person to person. There are some disabilities that you may be able to look at a person and they're in a wheelchair and so you can see that there is a disability there. There are some that are invisible and you may meet someone and and talk to them and get to know them and not even know that Absolutely. they that they have a disability. And it's very broad in, in so many different ways because somebody that has physical limitations as you do is going to be very different than somebody with schizophrenia. And so, I mean, it's, it's broad, but I think what with the Americans with disability act did, I think it needed to be broad in, in that way and to cover all of these people. One, one thing that you and I've talked about, we're just going to have a short discussion about this. Uh, I'm, I'm in a group of other parents with children like mine, and you and I have spoken about the fact that you don't like so much the term special needs, although that is generally, at least when we're talking about parents and of children, a lot of times that's the language used. And in speaking of, actually, I should say that when we're talking about disabilities, we are talking about these children too, whether they have cerebral palsy or autism or um, whether they have some sort of illness that falls under that umbrella. But can you talk about that and, and what language that you think is helpful and maybe not helpful to use? Well, I think it's so interesting because, you know, um, I actually, I do belong to a couple of parent groups as well that are like, have the the term special needs in them. And the interesting thing that I've found um, is that I think, um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong too, Colleen, because this is your experience as a mom. But from what I have found, it's often the parents of children with disabilities that use the term special needs. But as those children grow up to become adults, those are not often the terms they use to describe themselves. And I think that comes from a place, for me at least, um, I don't know if my parents ever used that terminology, but when I thought about it as an adult, special needs felt as if we needed to somehow be quiet around me or say, oh, Cassandra has special needs. When in reality, my needs aren't all that different from anybody else in the whole world. My needs are exactly the same. I just happen to have different accommodations to meet those needs um, or different ways to work around those needs. So just to give a practical example, um, if I were a special need that might be considered for me would be needing really large print or, um, you know, different types of even physical therapy or a white cane, my white cane to use to get around the community. Um, But those weren't, those were accommodations that I was given and tools that I was given to meet my needs of going to school and going to work and um, moving about my community and being fully integrated. I think also, you know, kids on the playground can hear the term special needs and they can use it as a way that um, segregates kids with disabilities and makes them feel like other. So for me, I like the term disability because it is in the legal statute. Um, it's what's been kind of accepted. And the more that we can learn about, I'm, I was a kid with a disability 
or I was a kid who had impairments. And those are definitions that I can go back to um, in different parts of like legalities that I can say, okay, this is what this means medically, this is what it means legally, and this is how I can interpret or live my life knowing what's out there. I think you're right that these kids that grow up, I don't think any of them say I'm special needs. Mm-hmm. So, and I don't think that you even hear that language in regards to adults, generally speaking. Yeah. You, you hear it in regards to children, but not adults. And in fact, I have a cousin that, that cares for adults with disabilities that are, the, these are adults that cannot care for themselves. And it's, it's very similar to like foster care, but for adults. And so they live in his home and they're, they're part of our family. They come to holidays and, and whatnot. And they don't use, he doesn't use, I care for adults with special needs. It's adults with disabilities. So, and, and disabilities can, and, and again, it's so broad because there are, like my son, Benjamin, because of his, not because of his cerebral palsy, but because of his developmental delays, um, will probably live with us indefinitely and has a very different life. It's very different than, than your life. Yeah. And that's interesting that you mention with cerebral palsy because um, March is actually CP Awareness Month, which is, I think, so cool that we get to record this podcast and and release it in the month of March, um, where every disability, I would say, is very much kind of on a spectrum as to how it how it impacts people in their daily lives. But cerebral palsy, especially um, for me, it's much more physical and it's much more taxing on my um, my movement and mobility. I'm I'm often spastic and have spasticity and chronic pain and chronic fatigue, um, but it has not affected my cognition or processing speeds. And I know that happens with certain types of cerebral palsy. So cerebral palsy is really an umbrella term for a specific type of um, neurological um, brain damage that happened for a number of reasons. In in my son's case, um it was because, I mean, you were born early, which, which played into it. Um, in my son's case, the cord was wrapped around his neck and during birth, um, his, his heart rate was, went down very, very low and he had a lack of oxygen to his brain during childbirth. And, and that's the other thing I'm glad you brought up about how cerebral palsy can differ so greatly too. I, before I had my own children, I I worked with kids with cerebral palsy and um, both of one of these girls uh, actually remind me a lot of her. Um, you know, it, it did um, affect her physically in a, in a lot of different ways, but she could still walk. Um, but it was, you know, it was a struggle sometimes. I know you use a wheelchair on occasion, correct? Yes. Um, like very rare occasions, but it's something I'm, definitely looking more into having in my life. And and then I took care of a of a little girl that she was not even able to sit up on her own. So it affected her physically even more than um, even though it affects you physically a lot. So so she needed a lot of assistance um, to do a lot. And that when I took care of her she was only 4 years old. So um, but she was in a wheelchair all the time. She had, you know, electronic wheelchair. So let's, let's move on and talk about disability culture. This is something I don't know 
almost anything about, uh, you know, even my son, because he's, he's, um, very quiet and shy. I don't even think he has many friends with disabilities, but I know that there's kind of a culture and I know that it's changed and there's a lot to this. I, I would just like you to talk about the culture. My knowledge of disability culture, um, is kind of only been for the last about five years. I very much grew up, um, with, you know, in what was considered mainstream public education. I didn't have very many friends who had disabilities. I think I was the only one in my school who was legally blind um, that I knew of. And it wasn't until I became an adult and got more involved in different things in the Grand Rapids community that were supporting people with disabilities that I learned about this kind of culture where disability... Um, identity was seen as something to celebrate and take pride in. And I would hear people refer to themselves as disabled with a capital D. Now, I knew that deaf culture very much is a culture and they don't see themselves as part of the disability community um, or having disabilities. They have, a, they have very much the, the pride of we have deaf culture. This is an integral part of who we are. What I didn't know was that was kind of also happening for people with disabilities. And even the language that was used in disability culture, um, folks would say, we don't say people with disabilities because we think that perpetuates um, a fear of the disability, that you can't name your disability and be proud of it. They would say that... um, person with a disability was very medical and very put on by um, professionals who thought they knew what was best. Um, And the disability culture and the disability pride of being, you know, saying my disability is a huge part of my identity, I think that came very much um, in response to historical backlash that for centuries people with disabilities in this country were absolutely denied even the most basic human rights. Um, People with disabilities were institutionalized and sterilized. And the eugenics movement was huge in saying we don't want disfigured or malformed bodies reproducing. Um, There were even laws on the books up until the 1920s, I believe, in which if you had any kind of physical disability in the United States of America, There are many state laws that barred people from marrying because they didn't want to um, continue the line of malformed human beings. And because people with disabilities, because their bodies were seen as different, were literally shut away from society until the mid-1970s, there was a movement that reacted to that, that said, how dare you say that my body is not something that I should take pride in. How dare you say that I can't be part of culture and vibrancy and beauty? And there's something about that that I I really, I respect on some level. And for my own journey, there was a part of me for some time that was very much staunch in my disability pride of like, I am a blind woman and that's what you're going to know about me. And that's what I'm going to always talk about. Um, But ultimately, 
I think the thing that worries me about disability culture, for all good that it is, for all of the awareness that it brings, which is important and something that we want for full inclusion, I worry that it will become the, the ultimate source of identity. Um, and as Christians, I think anything that separates our identity from who we are in Christ um, can become a dangerous idol. And I think I've seen that in a lot of the, the academic work of disability pride and culture. So there are positive things as far as bringing awareness and bringing and helping people feel confident in who they are. But I think with anything, it can go too far and uh, remove from what it means to stand firm in Christ's identity. You know, as you were talking, I was thinking about even um, the increase of abortion, um, aborting babies that may have disability. So now, even, you know, I had my first child, I got pregnant with my first child in 1995. And things have even changed since then so that early in pregnancy, you can do these genetic tests and find out so many different things that your child may have wrong. You know, it's just, it's um, just very sad because there, there are some things that, you know, that people are getting abortions for like spina bifida, Down syndrome, or there are some things that happen at birth, but there are some of these things that we would know before birth. Even so, even still, we're, we're seeing some things like that happening. And I think one of the things that I've learned about disability culture and the disability rights movement is there seems to be a very strong opposition to um, abortion um, and um, even even euthanasia um, to say that every life is a life worth living, and you know you should you should not abort um, you know, because of a disability, a fear of disability. I was reading a really staggering statistic that said something like 60% of the people surveyed in this study said that they would choose to abort their baby if they found out that it had Down syndrome or genetic mutation. And that's a conversation. Um, And I think I'm being conservative in the 60%. I think it was a bit closer to 70, but I want to say 60 Um, and knowing that, I think that's a conversation that says to me, how do we still perceive disability as a society? And where can the church speak to this on any number of these issues? Yeah, because with the if if we're now seeing and with the increase of some of these tests that they can do and tell you so much about your child, and if abortion has become even more common. Mm-hmm. For these children, what does it say about how we're viewing disability? Absolutely. And especially if you look at history and you look at the eugenics movement that we largely, you know, that was something that was very American in uh, the late 1800s. And the eugenics movement was huge um, during the Holocaust. And it's often not talked about. Yes, six million Jewish people died. But before Hitler was able to kind of get that control, he massacred and experimented on countless people with intellectual and physical disabilities. That was the start um, because eugenics and because science had made that possible for him to kind of try to create that. And so that's a, that's a very, as I'm someone who appreciates history and I, 
I, I want to know what we can learn from it, and I want to see ways that we could dangerously repeat it, and the, the trends of, of any kind of genetic modification or abortion as it relates to disability uh, frightens me, to be honest with you. Yeah, and especially as even in as we're able to learn more as far as um, in the medical community. Mm-hmm. And there, when you hear talk of, I think, a couple of countries that are haven't had any babies born with Down syndrome because they're aborting them and they're talking about this as if it's a good thing. Yeah. Um, the disability rights slogan um, often says nothing about us without us and um, they are lives worth living. And that's something that I think is such... That is something that I think the church can come alongside the disability rights movement and say, this is something that we agree with, and here's the gospel message as to why. So what what have you faced as, obviously, I think in, in the church, you're going to sometimes know people with disabilities, sometimes not. Although, if we're going to be honest about everything that a disability includes, so can you talk about, is there, in the church, what what have you faced? What sort of attitudes? Is there any sort of disability culture in the church? Um, where are we at? I, from my experience, I think, I think uh, um, the church, I think, has often approached disability with two differing perspectives that are not always the greatest. Um, I think historically, there's kind of a dark history of how the church has throughout the ages treated people with disabilities. I mean, Martin Luther said some horrendous things about folks with intellectual disabilities. So I think that historical lens of where the church, because it's full of fallen people, has misstepped, kind of ekes down through um, landing on pitying people who have disabilities. So often um, responses that I have gotten in the past have been, oh, I'm so sorry that you are dealing with uh, those disabilities. Um, One guy once told me that he was sorry for my afflictions. And um, so people pitied me or thought, you know, that must be so difficult. I'll pray for you. And while I don't, I mean, while I, I think we should definitely pray for each other through our sufferings, I think to automatically assume that a life with any kind of disability is one to be marked by pity is an absolute wrong approach. But conversely, I've also seen folks in the church think, oh my gosh, you are so strong to have these disabilities. Your faith must be really, really great. God must be doing some great things and I don't know how you do it, and I couldn't do it. And so then there's this idea where they're seeing me as someone who is ultra pious because of these physical disabilities that I have, or that somehow my faith must be stronger, or that I'm somehow um, just more Christian or something. And so the idea of absolute pity or kind of people with disabilities must be really pious and they must have a lot of faith, I think are both really wrong because they don't allow the person with the disability to simply be a person made in the image of God, struggling with sin just like everyone else, and wanting to be a part of a community without being judged for what people perceive 
as what this disability means for their faith life. I have faced in two different ways the things that you're talking about right now. First of all, in regards to having a child with a disability, people say things like, I could never deal with that like you are dealing with that. In the same way with having a chronic illness, people say the same things to me. It's the same sorts of things that you're describing. You know, oh, I could just never do what you're doing. I could never. And this is the thing. You deal with whatever the Lord gives you. Absolutely. I I guarantee you, if the Lord gave you an illness, if the Lord gave you a a child with cancer or cerebral palsy or any of those things, that he he walks with you through it. And that is your life. And I think what it says when someone says, I could never deal with that, I think what they're hiding really is a level of fear of, I really hope that doesn't happen to me. And I don't, I think it's important that we confront that fear, that we say disability is not something to be afraid of. It is not something to pity. It is not something to fear. It is not something that you hope against all hope never happens to you. It is something that the Lord can use to share his gospel. It is something that the Lord can use to daily sanctify you as the person with the disability or your family. The Lord uses absolutely everything in our lives including our suffering and especially our suffering. And, you know, that's another thing. People with disabilities in disability culture would like, you know, often would say, don't say I'm suffering. I'm not suffering. This is not a life of suffering. And while I agree with that, while I agree that life of disability is not wholly a life of suffering, I will say I'm okay with saying, yes, I do suffer because of these physical disabilities, but it does not it does not infiltrate my every thought of every day it is something i am aware of and it is something that i have to constantly learn to give back to the lord and say okay lord what are you going to do with me on a day when all i can think about is the pain or the disadvantages that come with these physical disabilities. I want to talk just a little bit. We're going to talk about the ADA in in a, in a minute about the legislation, but um, I want to talk a little bit just even in regards to just kind of speak out there to parents of children with disabilities because I think sometimes it can be very difficult in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, just as far as where this this intersects in the church. I think that in the church, in regards to children, we're going to talk later on about things that we can do. But mm-hmm. uh, some, of the, some of the things I think that the attitudes can be very, very difficult, in, just like Cassandra was just talking about, just like I was talking about when people act like, oh, you've just been given this this horrible burden. And... I think, too, my son, Benjamin, is just like any other kid in most ways. And and I think that sometimes the way that they're singled out gives them the wrong kind of special treatment. There, there are ways where we need and hope for special things. I guess special isn't the right word, but we, we hope that people will... Um, like make bathroom that'll be easier for some people and things like that. We we do hope for things like that. But sometimes singling them out as if they're not like every other child. And I know Benjamin definitely faced that. Yeah. 
Definitely. And I think the thing, yeah, the things we could hope for is accessibility, you know, put it in that accessible restroom if possible, because it's not only going to impact maybe someone immediately in your congregation who uses a wheelchair, but it, it could help someone who's visiting or, you know, the great thing about um, accommodations and accessibility with disability is if it's not just done for the, dis- the person with a disability, it can drastically impact um, everyone's lives for the better. And we, we can definitely talk more about that as we get into specifics of what the church can do. So why don't you talk about the ADA and what that did? I mean, yeah, about that, that kind of the history and how that the legislation and, and what that did and, and how things kind of the history of how things have changed since then. So the Americans with Disabilities Act was um, passed on July 26th, 1990. And it's crazy to me, first of all, to think that that's only been around for nearly 29 years and that I am actually older than the Americans with Disabilities Act because that was legislation that is so foundational to my ability and anyone's ability, Benjamin's ability, to live fully integrated lives into our community. And I think the reason that came about was because for years, legislation surrounding disability in the United States was often very limiting. Um, there's a great book that I would recommend if, if folks love learning about legislative history. It's called The Ugly Laws, um, Disability in Public. And I can give you that link for the resources. That talks about how often disability legislation was based on putting those people away. We don't want to see them. They are frightening our townspeople. We don't want them begging. We don't want them here. So if someone looks like they are causing an emotional disturbance for someone else, if someone is visibly ugly, then we can we can write legislation to say, we're going to put you away. We're going to put you in a poor house. We're going to um, restrict everything about your life. And that that really kind of continued to gain steam throughout the 20th century in the United States. Again, there were laws on the books about sterilization and um, prohibiting people from having children based on what we what what a doctor or a legislator thought was um, their cognitive ability to raise their children or their physical capability to raise their children. So there was no choice given. Um, People with disabilities were absolutely denied any kind of autonomy or independence. Um, you know, even, even in a hidden way, you didn't talk about it. If you had someone with a severe disability in your family, often in our history, you would put them away. Um, for example, the Kennedys, you know, they had a, there was a Kennedy daughter who was mentally impaired and she died in an institution and no one knew she existed. No one talked about her until recently. So that happened through the late 1960s and people were in institutions and people were denied access. And in the late 1960s, kind of on the, the same front as the civil rights movement was gaining steam and all these other um, social movements in the United States, people with disabilities said, it's now our time to claim our civil rights. And someone who was noted as the father of the independent living movement um, was Ed Roberts. And he was a young man. He wanted to go to Berkeley University. Um, He had the skills. He had the ability. He had the grades. However, he um, was a, a survivor of polio and had to live his life using an iron lung. 
And UC Berkeley said, you know, we really can't accommodate you. We don't really want you here. We've tried having a student in a wheelchair before. It didn't work. So we're not going to let you come to our school. And he fought for that. And he eventually got in. And he was the person who said, we need curb cuts. So prior to the 1970s, there were not curb cuts. People who had wheelchairs had to wheel their wheelchairs off of sidewalks that had ledges. But curb cuts today are great for everybody. They're great for moms with strollers. And that happened because of legislation that eventually culminated in the Americans with Disabilities Act. And it's important to note that the Americans with Disabilities Act tried to have different iterations for almost 30 years, but lawmakers would kind of shift around it or not really talk about it. Um, so we had the Rehab Act of the 1970s, which was really good, which ensured kind of employment rights for people with disabilities and vocational rights, but there was still a long way to go. And it wasn't until people with disabilities literally had to fight for their rights. And even leading up to the signing of the ADA, senators didn't want anything to do with it. People with disabilities historically took it upon themselves and said, if they are not going to listen to us, we are going to literally show up on the door of the Capitol steps. And what was organized that year before the signing of the ADA was what is known as the Capitol Crawl. And people of all sorts of disabilities literally got out of their wheelchairs and they crawled up the Capitol steps or they, they chained themselves to, together and they chained themselves, they had sit-ins and they had protests. All of these things to say to the American legislators, you are not listening to a vital part of people in this country who are citizens, who deserve basic rights. And, you know, they, they fought really hard for it. And I am so thankful for them. And I am so thankful for the independent living movement because if they didn't rise up um, in spirit, body, and voice to say, this is what we need, the ADA would not, I don't think it would be here. And the fact that it took until 1990 to grant people with disabilities rights is absolutely astounding to me. And it's interesting because it's, there's been some changes in the last few years with the ADA. There are five titles, and each title has different um, protections and different things that it specifies from education and employment and transportation and communication. All of these things to say these are areas of people's lives that we need to legislate. Um, but I think it's really important to keep an eye on what that legislation, how does that legislation still hold up today? What are ways that it can improve? And, you know, it's unfortunate to me to think that the church is excluded from the ADA. Um, religious organizations don't necessarily have to um, abide by, it's, it's encouraged, but because there was some dissenting voices of specific churches in the 1990s that said, we don't want the government to tell us how to regulate, that that's something that's not part of the conversation. And I appreciate that churches today are very much mindful of what do we need to do? How can we abide by the letter of the ADA, even if we're not required? And I think that's a kind of graciousness that 
needs to be talked more about. I wanted to talk really quick even about the changes that have happened even in the last especially 30 years, I think, in regards to children. When I was in elementary school in the 1970s, kids with disabilities actually had their own school in our district. Mm -hmm. So they were they were separated and in fact that that school was shared a field with um with the school that i attended and then in a lot of places they had their own classroom in and this was this there that may be necessary sometimes if you have kids with um specific learning um disabilities um you know, where they sometimes do that. But really what they've really done that's changed since then is that these kids are in the classroom just like every other child because they are just like every other child. Absolutely. And, you know, if they need, I have two friends that work as aides with children that just need an extra help, um, just need extra help. So they might need help getting from class to class or um, using the restroom or things like that if they're physical if their physical disability is um, requires that, but they're just they're in the classroom like every other child, mm-hmm. and so that's that's been a big change also. Absolutely, and it's something that I think is so important, um, and it's so important I think that we're even having this conversation because for me, growing up, I even though I had disabilities, I knew nothing about the disability or independent living movement. You know, you learn all sorts of things about the civil rights movement and the segregation of African-Americans, but there's nothing out there to learn about. Similar things happen for people with disabilities. And I think it's a shame that um, collectively, as a culture and a society, we don't talk about those same struggles and fights and the rights that are now here. Um, Because I, I agree, segregation was horrible. It's horrible any kind of way that you whatever group it happens to. Um, And integration, I think, has happened in the school system, and especially the public school system, for people with disabilities because of the disability rights activists. Let me say this, though, too. If you think that discrimination against people with disabilities doesn't still exist, you're wrong. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, that still exists. And I'm going to tell a quick story, even in regards to my own son, And so I homeschooled for many years. And when I got really sick, we decided to put our kids into, um, put some of our kids into a school. And so we have a charter school near us, a classical charter school that um, we put a couple of our kids into. And we were going to put Benjamin into that school too. And he got into the school and three days before school was going to start, the principal called me and told me, we don't want him here. We can't, we can't, we don't have the necessary uh, services, or I, I don't remember exactly what he said. He, he actually, I'm actually saying it nicer than he did. He just said, we, yeah, our school isn't for Benjamin and he won't be able to attend here. He didn't give me very many good reasons actually at all. And Benjamin can go to the bathroom by himself. He can care for himself. He, it's not like he needs some extra, he doesn't need somebody there with him at all times. Although some of his, um, he does struggle with learning, but we had him in the appropriate grade and he was doing fine. But I, 
And I probably would have fought it. In fact, I did even talk to people who said that what the school did was wrong. Um, But I was so sick at the time, I didn't have the energy to do it. But all people with disabilities do face different sorts of things. And Cassandra, have you ever faced anything? Oh, yeah, I faced um, discrimination a lot. Um, I mean, it it happened in ways that I didn't really know the name for it um, until, you know, again, like six years ago when I learned about the ADA. But I, um, I, you know, faced discrimination in high school when I, I had the voice to be a singer. I could act to be in the school musicals. Um, but I was told that the choreography would be too difficult for me because of my cerebral palsy. And so they weren't going to cast me in the musical, even though I had two out of three. And I don't think every single actor singer needs to be dancing on the stage. There are definitely other things I could have done. Um, and that was really hard because I was a, you know, in high school, you're already dealing with so much. Um, all I wanted to do was to, to be on stage and to sing and perform. But because of people seeing my perceived limitations and my cerebral palsy, I was told that, you know, we don't have a, a space for you on this stage. Um, Eventually, I did get into a high school musical my senior year, but they cast me as the old woman um, in the play. And the director told me, your cerebral palsy is making it really easy for you to play this role. And I said to him, well, it's called acting. And so I'm acting the role of an old woman. It's not the CP that's doing this. Um, So that was an example of discrimination. And then as an adult, um, I flew out to Boston I wanted to work in Boston as um, kind of a social work liaison between home and school in a really poor neighborhood in Boston. So I booked the trip by myself. I flew out there by myself. My parents were very supportive. They said, if you want this job, it's all up to you. Plan it all and let us know what you need. So I had the phone interview. I booked the flight. They had me, they had me come out for an onsite interview. And I get there and I have my white cane. And that's something that I need to to navigate around Boston. I I found out where I needed to go in Boston. I navigated all of that. I had done all of this. And I get to the day of the interview. And I walk in. And I had my white cane kind of folded up underneath my arm. And I went to sit down. And the cane clicked itself together and unraveled. And I dropped it. And it rolled at the guy's feet. And he was about 26 years old. And I was like 22 at the time. And he just... He was terrified. It looked like he had seen a ghost. And he said, oh, you didn't tell us about this. How are you going to work with our students? And I said, well, I didn't have to tell you about this. Um, I'm going to work with your students based on my abilities. You have recommendations from, from some of the greatest professors at Calvin College who can vouch for my ability to do this job and my desire to do this job. And I am here. Um, so for the whole day, he shadowed me and I, it was like a, an on the job interview. And I spent the whole day with the students and I spent the whole day learning what the program would be. And at the end of it, he was still very skittish. And he, he asked me, you know, are, are your parents going to come pick you up right now? And I said, well, no, I have to go catch a flight to Baltimore and then Grand Rapids, where my parents will pick me up because I live in Michigan. And he was absolutely shocked. Um, And I didn't get that job. And I was sent a very basic 
denial letter. But I know for a fact that I was discriminated against because the moment he saw that cane, everything I did for the rest of the day, he was constantly judging and constantly acting um, as if I wouldn't be capable. Now, I very much believe in God's sovereignty. And I think that had I got had I gotten that job in Boston, my life would have looked very different than it is right now. And I'm thankful for the, the things that have kept me here in Grand Rapids. But that was huge for me. And that was absolutely devastating because that was my dream. I wanted to live in Boston. I wanted to get my social work degree somewhere on the East Coast. And I wanted to, to serve um, the, the, the poorest neighborhoods of Boston. And I couldn't do that because some 26-year-old didn't know what the law required and didn't look to see beyond my perceived limitations to say what I was capable of and what my heart wanted to do in that community. You know, I think it really it really shows that there is still a lot of ignorance out there. And I think even if you don't have somebody in your life, sometimes you don't take the time to to learn and and grow an understanding about this. What would you say to parents of kids with disabilities? What are what are some things that you would encourage them with as they're raising these children? What I would say is first of all, my parents are astound like I am so thankful to my parents for the opportunities they gave me. They raised me. They knew right away um, they, as they learned more about my challenges, they said, okay, we have options. We are either going to limit Cassandra and shelter her and protect her and say she can't do anything, or we are going to tell her that she can do whatever she sets her mind to, and we're going to help her figure that out, and we're going to help her grow. We're going to give her the support that she needs to do what she wants to do, and she as far as we're concerned, as her parents, her disability will not limit her life choices. And that was precisely, I think, what has caused me to be so so assured today and so strong-willed um, because my parents never told me no. I think they said, oh, you want to go out to Boston? Go ahead. I learned later they were terrified and they were scared. They were letting their daughter who has physical limitations and who is legally blind go figure out Boston's transit system by herself. But they knew that, that, that I, I wanted this and that I would figure it out. And that if I failed, it was okay to fail. So I think, and I think it, it depends on the disability too, but also I really think the best parents when it comes to dealing with the issue of disability are the ones who step into their kids' reality every day and say, okay, what is it that you want to do with your life? How do you want to glorify God in the skills and abilities that you've been given? And let's come together and figure out resources that we need for those areas that might not be. Um, So just the, the parental belief of it's okay as parents to be afraid. I think it's okay to to not know what a disability diagnosis means for your kids. I think it's also okay to to grieve the struggles they might have or to grieve the struggles you might have because I myself sometimes still grieve that I have the challenges that I do. So it's okay to fear and it's okay to grieve, but it's not okay to live in those places. And I think it is 
wonderfully acceptable to say, okay, you're my kid and I love you. How can I help you to succeed in the Lord? And also to know that that God is sovereign and that God has a purpose for why anything happens in this world, including disability. So trusting him to let your child live in the way that would most glorify him. I think that that was great. You know, I think a, an important thing is we had talked a little bit earlier about identity and I don't think it's good for your children to think that their identity is their disability. I have four children and they're all different. And and that's they are exactly who the Lord has made each of them and they're different in different ways and they each have different struggles. Mm-hmm. And they each have different strengths. And Benjamin's no different in that way than my other children. He has his own set of struggles and his own set of strengths. And he is exactly who the Lord has made him. And I don't think Benjamin thinks that much about his disability. I don't, you know, I think even in the ways that he struggles and has to work harder, that's always been it, the way it's been for him. So I don't think it occurs to him a lot. Um, I mean, I'm sure maybe as he gets older, it will, but he's had to work harder for some things for sure. And I want to talk about the the church. So where's the church in all of this when with Americans with Disabilities Act? And um, let's start with that, because I, you know, if you go, any one of our listeners that goes and reads about Americans with Disabilities Act will learn that some of the churches did um, push back against it, and for various reasons. Um, some of them, you had small churches that um, that pushed back because they were afraid they couldn't afford to do um, all of the things that would be necessary, you know, but there were churches that pushed back against it for various reasons. Um, but where's the church? Let's start with that. And then we're going to get to some of the practical. Mm-hmm. I think, um, the church is at a great place to say, you know, if you are, um, a follower of Christ, you are welcome here and we want you here and we want you in our worship and it might be uncomfortable. Um, I think so often we get really caught up um, in our Sunday mornings of things being as they always have been. So the quietness during a sermon and the the way that we take communion or the ways that our, our spaces are set up. I think we often, that's just the way it's always been. But if you have a family coming to your church who has already dealt with so much from the world where they have to constantly advocate for their kids. Often you don't want to go to church and have to do those things. You want to go to church to be part of a body. I mean, that was my struggle um, for a time when I was not part of a church. There were a lot of things going on in my life that the Lord has brought me through. But one of those things was I don't want to have to keep asking Um, for accommodations. I don't have to keep talking about my disability. I just want to worship. So I'm not going to worship. And if churches were more mindful in the way that they set things up, in the way that we even talk about disability to say, hey, you know, while the pastor is preaching, um, 
often everyone's quiet and that's the status quo. But if you have a child who has um, a sensory disorder or autism or any where they'll might just burst out and they might be loud, you know, either I think a great response could be having a place for that family to go or, you know, just the, the pastor can just keep preaching. And it may be um, the first time it may be a distraction, but, you know, to say that person, that child who is having a moment of an emotional outburst, they still need to be ministered by the word. We don't want to separate their family and take them away. I think changing our mindset as to how we approach um, Sunday morning, even in the language that we use, I think it's so important to say, you know, so often in, in our churches, we, we stand to sing the hymns. But even if we were to say, you know, stand if you are comfortable or able or stand in body or spirit, I think that language is really inclusive to say that we won't look at you or think that you are less engaged if you choose to sit down today because of whatever is happening in your life. One of the things when we were talking earlier about identity and um, even for parents of children with disabilities, not making it their primary identity, I think sometimes other people do that. And I've seen this in the church, and this is a big problem. It's even a problem for me as somebody with an illness where 90% of the time when people come and talk to me, it's about that, you know? (laughs) And I'm like, I don't, I live with this all the time. I don't want to talk about it all the time, you know, but I think for you, especially Cassandra and even my son, Benjamin, where it's people can look at you and see that there's something, Mm -hmm. that there's a disability there. Talk about that because I know you've faced this also. I think, um, I think I've just, people see something. I think it kind of goes back to that, like, what's wrong with you kind of question. Um, This has not happened in my current congregation, which is beautiful because it's, it's very separate when it comes to different denominational beliefs. But when I was church shopping for a while, when I was kind of in my own spiritual wilderness, I would often go to different churches that I would hear about and automatically I would walk in and I'd have the white cane and I'd have a bit of my gait and folks would come up to me and like, want to heal me. Um, And I think that's a very common, even a common perception out in the world. Like when I'm out taking the city bus, I've had so many interactions of people who say that they follow Christ and want to see me healed from my afflictions and want to lay hands on or pray over me. Um, And that can be really disorienting either in a church setting or out in the community because um, people with disabilities need the gospel just like everyone else. And if there is this collective Christian mindset, whether or not it's the right way of approaching Christ, if that's out there and people know it's out there, then they're going to be afraid to come to our churches no matter what the churches believe about physical healing. This is the thing. I think that there's got to be a way somewhere between um, making things accessible, but also not making everything about that. Yeah. So um, the other thing, the thing that we really faced also, and to this day, and Benjamin is um, almost 21, is that Benjamin has um, speech speech issues. So um, he, when he was very young, he was very difficult to understand and nobody would ever talk to him. 
they would talk to my son, Jonathan. Jonathan was like Ben's translator. And and there were times even where my husband and I would say, what are you saying, Benjamin? What are you saying? And we couldn't understand. And Jonathan would say, he's saying blah, 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 blah. You know, and he'd tell us what he was saying. But this wasn't that. This is where people would not ever even attempt to talk to Benjamin. They'd walk up to Jonathan and say, Jonathan, ask Benjamin if he wants some punch. <laughs> you know? Oh, my gosh. And they, they would never talk to him or... Benjamin's standing right next to us as he's an adult now. And they look at, you know, my husband or I and say, so how's Benjamin doing with his new job? And it's like, why don't you ask him? He's right here. You mm-hmm. know? And so I think sometimes that's that fear too. Yeah. I haven't had that happen in a church setting, thankfully. Um, but I've definitely had it happen just out in the world. So many times people will either talk to my husband or my mom or a friend of mine. I think the most recent story is I was out grocery shopping. Um, my husband, David, and I were out with another couple. We were picking up food for it. We were going to make a dinner together. And I was, I love vintage clothing. So I was wearing um, like a 1950s um, shirt dress. And I was just, you know, that's my style. I love that. And so, and I had my white cane and I was with my friend Taylor. And this woman tapped on Taylor's shoulder and said, tell your friend her dress is beautiful. And Taylor just burst out laughing. And I turned around and I said to the person, I said, well, thank you. I really appreciate that. And they were just shocked. And they, they kind of walked away. And it was as if they, they thought, oh, she speaks, you know, I didn't, or she hears or whatever. Um, and I think Taylor was like, does that happen to you often? And I said, oh, all the time. And she couldn't believe that people, because they see a white cane, are so afraid to speak to me. Um, which is kind of one of the reasons why I choose to dress the way that I do. It's to say, I'm going to change your perception of what it means to have a disability. You know, I I love fashion and I love makeup and I love classically feminine ways of expressing my, my being a woman. And that's something I've always loved, but it's something that I hope to use to just change conversations. I know people are going to stare I know people are going to talk about me, so I might as well leave an, an impact as they're doing it. We're going to probably have to have you on again to dig into some of these things more deeply because we're running out of time here. But what what can the church do? You know, because we probably have people that are listening that think, well, I don't have anyone in my church with a disability. And you 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 do, whether you think you don't or not. If you look at the umbrella of everything that fits under there, I, I can't imagine there's a church that exists that doesn't. Um, it just may not be what you've thought of as a disability. But um, those people and then the people sitting there thinking, wait, I know that these people are in my church and maybe I haven't done what I should or been there for them or been a friend. Mm-hmm. Well, I do want to recommend a book. Um, it's a book that a, f- a friend of mine, Kevin Timpe, wrote. He is a professor of philosophy at Calvin College. Um, I will say I, I don't recommend the book based on its theological merits, but I do think it's a fantastic book when it comes to talking about how the church should respond to disability. He himself has a son um, with multiple disabilities, and so this has become kind of his, his life's work. And the book is called... Um, Disability and Inclusive Communities. Um, And that's a great book that he kind of gives. It's a primer, an overview of what has historically happened 
um, how the church has responded historically, and then what we can do moving forward. Again, I wouldn't, I, I disagree with some of his um, theological perspectives on disability, but I do think it's a great resource when it comes to the practical applications of how we are to be inclusive. Um, one of the things that I would definitely encourage is um, so often we think about ministry to people with disabilities. How can we bring the gospel to them? And I'd like for the church to think, how can we minister with people with disabilities? What are their gifts and talents and abilities they can bring to us? How, how can we use that in the sharing of the gospel? Um, from my perspective, I, my PCA church now offers large print bulletins. Um, that was something that I asked for. Um, and now they have multiple copies of the large print bulletin. And I've seen elderly folks in my congregation use those. So even typing things out in ways that are strong contrast or a bit larger print, um, you know, speaking about having possibly a quiet space where parents can bring their kids if, if they need to. Um, I would also encourage local churches, uh, partner with your local Center for Independent Living. And um, so there are Centers for Independent Living all over the United States, and they have tons of resources as far as accessibility and accommodations. And I don't know if if there's often been a strong connection between the church community and the local CIL or Center for Independent Living, but I think there's a lot of opportunity to to grow there. Centers for Independent Living are um, operated and you know staffed by folks who 51% of the staff has some sort of disability. So they're helping people with disabilities. They are themselves people with disabilities and their whole mission is to kind of look at how can we create accessible integrative communities. So um, I can definitely give resources on that. I, I know that the CRC has some great resources about what it means to be accessible, but I think ultimately what we wanna do is just to think about this even as a conversation to say, are there people in my community who maybe have transportation issues or can't drive? Can we maybe on a Sunday say, if you have limitations or have trouble getting to church for whatever reason, let's create um, a van driver where we rotate, you know, large print bulletins, or even as communion is being served, the pastor could say something like, you know, um, just if you, do not feel comfortable or are unable to come up and take communion, that's okay. I'd love to be able to come and minister it to you. Just raise your hand. And like, so that's something that's announced and that's known and that it's not specifically going to the person with a disability and saying, how can we help you? But announcement from the pulpit to say, how can we as a community be more inclusive to better share the love of Christ? And I think if you, if you have uh, children in your congregation, I do think it's okay, and I would even encourage going to those parents and asking them, is there anything that we can do to help? Absolutely. And because I I think that would have gone very far for me. I don't remember, I don't recall that anyone really ever did that until Benjamin was much older, but I it would have been very, very helpful because I know as parents, sometimes we're afraid to ask. And if somebody 
had come to me, there are things that I would have said, you know, this would be really helpful or that would be very helpful. And absolutely. And I think parents are the best advocates for their kids, but you parents can get exhausted for having to advocate for all the time, you know, so having someone to ask and to know that you might not ask in the best way. I think there needs to be some willingness to be vulnerable and transparent Um, as much as we've talked about the missteps that people take. I think it's important to understand that the church should be a place of vulnerability and transparency where we might not always get it right. So if you are a parent um, and you're not sure what to ask for, you, you probably know more than you think. Don't be afraid to ask that. Don't be afraid to open that conversation. And if you are a church leader or um, pastor or someone who is involved in the women's ministry or the children's ministry to seek those people out and to say, I might not get all of the questions correct, but I'm here and I'm wanting to make sure that this can be a place where you and your whole family flourish. I think also finding ways to help those parents, uh, Cassandra and I have talked about this, but there's, there's only certain people I could leave Benjamin with. And so having people in my church who had said, you know, if, if you and Brent ever want to go out or go away, we can take him because they were able to, they were people that we trusted to leave him with to be able to do that. And I think even finding ways because the, sometimes these parents are tired, Mm -hmm. uh, depending on how, or depending on what they're dealing with, they're probably going to therapy appointments all week and they're probably fighting for their children and they're caring for their child. And so finding ways to even help beyond just Sunday morning. Absolutely. Offering, you know, like you said, offering kind of respite um, to say, and even if, you know, like you said, as a parent, there are only certain people you could trust um, to watch Benjamin. I think it's so important for a church community to say, okay, I might not know the best way to care for Benjamin, but I have a heart to do this. Colleen, would you be willing to take some time with me to teach me, you know, to, to kind of say to, that right. everyone can grow and everyone can learn. Right. And so there, there's so much. And we, I think we only scratched the surface. Yes. I think this is going to end up being like a one of two parts. I've already decided it. <laughs> so okay. we're going to bring, bring Cassandra back on in the next couple of months and do a part two to this, because I think there's just so much more that we need to talk about in regards to this. What do you think? Would I, you I would love that. Okay, great. <laughs> great. Because I'm looking at the time thinking there's still so much more I wanted to talk about. And, and I think it's an important topic. And so let me just say to our listeners, if there's anything specific you want us to talk about on part two, we'll wait, we'll wait at least a month to do part two so that we can um, get some of those questions in. Email me at theologygals at gmail.com email anything that, hey, can you talk about this? Or I wonder this, email that to me. Also, Cassandra's given me several resources that I'm going to link in our episode notes along with her blog, because she's written about some of these things too. Thank you. And I, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely also open um, on Facebook. So I'm totally open to people adding me as a friend. I'm active in the Theology Gals Facebook group. What I hope to be um, is just a resource. And, you know, I, I'm also willing to learn. I would love to learn, too. I don't think I'm the absolute expert on this, but it's something that I'm very passionate about and love to connect with other people about because it is so important to the sharing of the gospel. 
Amen to that. Well, Cassandra, thanks for joining us. I'm glad we're going to do a second part because there's so much to talk about in regards to this. And it's such an important topic to me, obviously, and and very much to you. And this isn't just, um, you know, your life. This is what you do for a job. You are helping other people with disabilities. Yeah, I, I feel really, really blessed to be able to do all of this and to love it so much. So thank you so much, Colleen. Been a joy. Well, um, to our listeners, we'll see you next week and just keep your eye open for part two.